You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. This week, I was just reminded about how terrible the tragic events of 9-11 were. Um, like me, I'm sure you saw all the uh, shows and, and different accounts on the History Channel or whatever, and, and uh, just being reminded of the, of the atrocity of that day and the impact that it's had on really the world um, is just a heavy weight. And uh, for many of us, you know, we remember that 19 Islamic terrorists hijacked four different planes, flew two planes into the World Trade Center, one into the Pentagon, and one crashed in a field in Pennsylvania, killing almost 3,000 people. It's a heavy weight. What we learned during that experience is that there, there's a group of people that genuinely have a hatred for America. And not only do, do, do they hate and have they hated, but they have actually declared war against us. And before 9-11, we just were kind of living our lives, hopping on airplanes and, 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 and doing life, and nobody was really worried about planes getting hijacked and buildings being knocked down by suicide uh, bombers and suicide pilots. It just wasn't on our radar. But the reality is, there was a war going on, and we didn't even know about it. We're, we, we weren't even worried, or we weren't even dealing with it. But it was already happening. I want us to think through this same lens today when it comes to our spiritual life. Because so many people who consider themselves Christians or go to church live their life as if there's no real battle going on. There's not really a war spiritually taking place. And we just live our life. We just get up and go to work and do our thing. And our schedules are hectic and crazy and busy, and we don't think anything about it. And our kids, kids are being disobedient and acting up, and we don't understand why. And we keep running to different things to numb the pain in our life, and we don't really slow down to ask why. Marriages are struggling. Marriages are ending. Kids are following the path of the enemy. And we're seeing all this tragedy around us. We see this hopelessness around us. We see the struggle that is around us. And I don't know, we just stay busy so we don't have to think about it. Or we just blame politics. Or we, you know, blame some other religion. We blame culture. And what I want us to realize is that we are in a war. It is a spiritual battle. One of the things that really stirs me up and gets me upset about the whole 9-11 thing, so many things, but the, the reality is that we actually taught these terrorists how to fly planes here in America. And then they used that knowledge to kill so many innocent people. Man, that just fires me up. And at the same time, you know what happens spiritually in our life? We allow the enemy to come and infiltrate right into our home. And through the movies, through the TV, through the music, through the lack of spiritual guidance that we give to our children, the lack of prayer, the lack of worship, the lack of anything real spiritual happening at all in our homes, essentially what we're doing is, is we're allowing the enemy to infiltrate. We're teaching our kids how to fly these planes that are going to wreck their life in the future. And ultimately, they're wrecking our life as well. We are in a war, guys, and we have got to wake up. 
Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a battle going on in the, in the spiritual realm. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God wants to do in your life and in your family's life. And you can't mindlessly just sit back and let it happen. You can't mindlessly just think that showing up to church one hour a week is going to resolve that battle. It's going gonna, gonna to allow you to win that battle. You must engage. Part of the enemy's strategy is to lie to us and to deceive us into thinking that we can save ourselves. He lies to us and, and he leads us to believe that we can live a good enough life. And, and you know what? God's going to be fair. Just, just try really hard. And if you try hard enough and you do some good stuff, God's going to be fair. I mean, he's going to let you go to heaven. You just got to try harder. The enemy wants you to believe that you're really not that bad of a person. But the problem is that even though you're trying to do good, you're trying to do better, you have this feeling in your life that you really aren't living. It's this feeling in your life that you are just kind of doing the deal and it, there's no real point to the deal. There's no real meaning behind your life. If you were honest, you would say that there is some hopelessness there. There's, some, there's this mentality that there's no purpose and and you would say, ultimately, I just really kind of feel dead inside. And then I wake up like a robot and I go to work and I do this and I take my kids and I go here. And, and man, I just feel numb. I just feel dead inside. But you were not created to feel dead inside. You were not created to do life alone. You were not created to live in confusion and isolation and emptiness. You were created for a purpose. God created you to live in that purpose and do things that matter in this life. He didn't create you to feel alone. He didn't create you to, to feel separated from his love and his plan. So today I want to show you why you feel dead inside and how God can bring you to life how God wants to, in fact, bring you to life. And you can understand his purpose. You can understand his plan. And, and we're going to find that in Ephesians chapter 2. We're in a series entitled, This Means War. We're walking through the book of Ephesians together. And so we started last week in chapter 1. Today, we're in chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. Here's what it says. And you, you and me, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We once walked in this way, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. 
Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's dissect this passage a little bit. He starts by showing us in the first three verses our life without Christ. And so these dead flowers here represent our life without Christ. We are dead in our trespasses. Now, you might say, well, I've got a heartbeat. I've got a pulse. I'm breathing today. I'm, I think I'm alive. How am I alive physically but dead spiritually? Well, the Bible talks about three deaths. And the first death the Bible talks about is a physical death. And that is separation of man's spirit from his body. And every single one of us, we are going to experience that separation of our spirit from our body. It is a physical death. Sorry for the bad news today, but every single person in this room will one day die. The second death that the Bible talks about is the spiritual death. And the spiritual death is the separation of a man from God while he is still living and walking on earth. This is a spiritual death that the scripture speaks to in our text today. This is the natural state of a man who does not have faith in Jesus Christ. He has not been saved, and he has not put his faith in Christ. He is spiritually dead. 1 John 5, 12 says, For whoever has the Son has life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The third death the body the Bible talks about, is eternal death. Eternal death is the, spirit, is the separation of man from God's presence forever. This is what the Bible calls the second death. The second death. It is an eternal separation from God. Revelation 21 verse 8 says the cowardly. It says the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, the liars. He's, he's creating a list here. And, and he says, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So three deaths in the Bible. We have the, the physical death. We're all going to face that. The spiritual death. We all are born spiritually dead. And that's why this is a good representation. It's a good picture in our mind as to our life without Christ. I can't add any water in here to bring these flowers back to life. I can't run to Home Depot and get some uh, some whatever, some fertilizer to to bring these flowers back to life. It is 100% out of my control to be able to bring these flowers back to life. So is the same thing spiritually for the spiritually dead. So he says we are dead in our spiritual life. He says that we are dead in our trespasses. He's, we're dead in our sin. And you know what sin is. The actual word sin here in the Bible means literally that we miss the mark. We miss the mark of the life that God created us to live. The Bible says that we've fallen short of God's glory. We should live a life in light of God's glory 
in light of his power, but we do not. We live in light of our glory and what we want to do. We might be respectable people at some points in our life, but we could never be perfectly respectable. You might be kind every now and then, but there's no way that you could be perfectly kind for the rest of your life. It's an impossibility. And the scripture tells us that God cannot allow sin into heaven. And so because we are spiritually dead, we're separated from God, we cannot enter heaven, we cannot have a relationship with God because of this sin. Now, as we are spiritually dead, the scripture says here in verse 2 that we are following Satan's path. We are on a course that was set by the world. So when he says that we are following the prince of the power of the air in verse 2, he's referring to the enemy. His name is Satan. So this dark spiritual world has access to our world and influences us, influences this world. And before Christ, we are willingly following that path, willingly rejecting Jesus and following the path of the enemy. 1 John 3.10 says, this is how we know who the children of God are, who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. This is how we know, by what they do, how they live, the path that they are on. What does this path look like? Some of us have to be careful because this is going to describe your life right now. But he says it very clearly. Verse 3, we're following the passions of the flesh. The passions of the flesh or the desires of the body specifically. Sexual immorality, laziness, intoxication, overeating. These are the things that he is saying that this is the sin of the body. These lusts of the flesh. He also says that they are desires of the mind. So these desires of the mind are those immoral thoughts, self-centeredness, anger, unbelief in Christ, envy, pride, bitterness, unforgiveness. This is what the path of following the enemy looks like. When, when there is evidence of this unbelief in Christ and envy and pride and bitterness and unforgiveness in your life, this is the point that we have to realize, okay, if that describes my life, perhaps then I have not received life in Christ and I'm still dead in my sin. I'm dead in my trespasses. The next thing it says is that we are by nature children of wrath. Some of you are like, dude, this is heavy. <laughs> I didn't know this about myself. Yeah, children of wrath. What does that mean? Well, that means that by nature, I have a sin nature. And, and because of that nature to sin, and, and, and because I am not holy and God requires me to be holy, he is righteously angry at sin. And therefore, the wrath of God is poured out against sin. And, and, and so as a child of wrath, we are realizing that, yes, we deserve this wrath because we have fallen short. We are sinful. We willingly reject Jesus. We willingly do what we want to do. God is angry at sin. His wrath is fair to be upon us, right? We deserve that. means that we don't act for Jesus. We don't receive Jesus. We don't worship Jesus. We don't trust Jesus. We don't praise Jesus. We don't serve Jesus. This is what a spiritually dead life looks like. So every single person in the room, before we trusted Christ, that is what life looks like. If you have not trusted Christ, that is your life today. The Bible says that you are spiritually dead without faith 
in Christ. Verses four through seven talk about God's work in Christ. So while we are dead, God works in his son Jesus. And what is he doing? Look at verse four again. This is one of the most amazing verses in the entire Bible. This one truth, you're a child of wrath. You are dead in your trespasses. You are following the prince of the power of the air. You are dead. You are following the desires of your body, a child of wrath. Verse four, but God, but God, despite your sinfulness, despite your rebellion, despite your dead nature, God, who is rich in mercy, He is rich in mercy. He does the most loving thing that we could ever, ever think of. When it says that he's rich in mercy, it makes me think of just our culture and what we think is wealth and what we think is rich. And I don't know, do you you guys know, anybody up here in front know who the wealthiest person in the world is, the richest person? Marty, you know? Take a guess. Nothing? Do you ever buy anything on Amazon? Your daughters do? Oh, very manly. Blame your daughters. <laughs> yeah, he's like, they do, man. <laughs> yeah, the, the wealthiest person in the world is Jeff Bezos. Uh, and, and so if you ever buy anything on Amazon, you're, you're making him a rich man. He's worth over $162 billion. Billion dollars, right? That's what we're talking about here. That is a lot of cheese right there. And let's just say, Marty, you're at Cracker Barrel today, and you're about to order Mama's pancake breakfast, and so that's your go-to, and so you're about to dive in. And right about the time you're about to eat those pancakes, you get a phone call, and it's Jeff Bezos, and he's like, what's up, Marty? Hey, man, I just wanted you to know that from this point on, I'm going to lavish you with the riches of my bank account. That'd be pretty sweet, wouldn't it? Now, while we're dreaming here, I think the first step is you're probably going to give a large donation to Foothills Church, right? (laughs) We're going to plant churches. Yeah, yeah, come on, come on. You're dreaming, I'm dreaming too, right? Uh, but that's going to change your life forever. And so he's going to give you money, and, and you're going to live it up, and you're going, to, you're going to do all kinds of great things for your family. It's going to be a wonderful event. But we all know what worldly wealth kind of looks like. I mean, you know, he might lose his job. Something might happen with the economy. Some, a better option might happen, and so he might lose his wealth. He might make a bad investment. He may not be so wealthy in 20 years. So there's that going on. There's also the reality that eventually Jeff is going to pass away, just like all of us. And let's just say he, his will leaves all of his money to his wife. And he's like, and, and, and his wife's like, Marty who? No, you're not getting any more. Right? The point is that eventually, no matter how wealthy you are, it's going to run out. It might help you. It might help your kids, maybe your grandkids, but your great-grandchildren, probably not. Your great-great-great-grandchildren. Eventually, it's going to run out, right? He's going he's to pass away. He's not going to be able to use it. It's, it's not going to be useful. Manly wealth. Worldly wealth and riches is only temporary. So when we look at this passage and it says the riches of his mercy, God is seeing us in our sin and he's having mercy on us. He's withholding his judgment. He's providing a way for you and I to experience salvation. This is richness in mercy. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I, I wasn't super excited about heaven, you know, because when you, you know, hear about heaven in church, it's like streets of gold 
And it's like, as a kid, it's like, who cares? I, I don't really care about gold. I really don't know anything about gold. And, and you know, we're going to sing. And like, ah, dude, I don't want to sing. That's like the worst thing when you're a kid, right? And so I don't, that doesn't sound like a fantastic place to me. And then it was that whole, you know, in my mind, angels were those fat little baby angels. And so it was like, those are freaky, right? I don't want to be around them. Gosh. But as I've gotten older, what I'm beginning to realize is that eternity with God is this place of ultimate peace where he is lavishing upon us all of his wealth, all of his resources, all of the richnesses of who he is upon us every single day for eternity. He is never going to run out of ways to bless you. He's never going to you know, stop being creative in how he's going to bring joy in your life for all eternity. We can't hardly fathom that. It's hard to really wrap our minds around, but this is the richness of God's mercy. It is eternal. It's never going to run out. It's never going to end. He, he, he invented the whole concept of wealth, right? I mean, he owns everything. Therefore, every need that we have, he is the ultimate source of giving us whatever it is that we need to make it through today and most definitely to experience salvation. Verse four, he's rich in mercy because of why? Because of his great love. This love is given to us even though we don't deserve it. Even though we are unworthy, even though we don't even look for it, we don't even want it, he compels us to come near to him. This is what's happening. This is the greatest love story in the history of love. There's nothing more that proves God's love for you and me today than him looking at his son Jesus in heaven and saying, Jesus, I want you to leave the riches of my mercy here in heaven, and I want you to go to earth. I want you to become a man, experience that pain, experience that suffering, and I want you to die for people that don't even want you to die for them. This is great love. And as a result of that great love, verse 5 says that he makes us alive. He makes what is dead come alive. So these flowers represent our new birth. The Bible says that we are born again through the Spirit. The Bible says that God makes us alive. And so this is the imagery of what it means to walk in newness of life. We baptize almost 30 people today, and every single one that we baptize, when they come up out of the water, we say, and they rise to walk in newness of life as a representation of what has happened in their spirit. These flowers represent the fact that God has saved you. He has changed you. He takes these dead bones, and he creates a beautiful bouquet of life. You're his masterpiece. If you're a Christian, this is your story. This explains why there's so much pain and destruction in the world. This explains why there's so much suffering, because when we are walking the path of the enemy, we hurt each other constantly. But when you are made new, when you have been born again, you are now living in light of God's grace and love. And now you are progressively getting more and more mature and more and more holy as you seek to worship him and love him and understand him. God's deep love 
is that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 8 says that it was by his grace that we have been saved. Through faith, he resurrects our dead body, the brokenness of our life, and he puts it back together, and he makes it a beautiful bouquet of life that we now live for him. He makes us alive. Now, last week, last week we said that God, we read that God predestined us and saved us, and we respond in faith. We, we learn that he is doing this before the foundations of the world. He's saving us, right? And that's his plan, and, and that's his purpose. And then we learn today he's making us alive. So he predestined us, and we're held responsible for our decisions. But when God is taking a dead spiritual person and making them come alive, in that new birth, in that brand new life, there is nothing that you and I do. In other words, we don't say, okay, God, now make me new. This is totally, 100% a work of God. He makes us a new person. John 1.13 says, we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. In other words, we weren't born again based on what we wanted. This was the will of God in our life. The very term born again shows us that we can't make ourselves come alive. You didn't make yourself get born the first time. You just showed up. You're like, "Woo, what's up? Right? Feed me. That's all, that's all you did. And so the same idea is that when we are born again, you don't change your nature. It's impossible for you to be able to do that. God is doing that. This is helpful, I think, because so many people, I hear it time and time again, I will get involved in ministry, I will come to church, I'll start you know, doing some things at church when I get some things worked out in my life. In other words, I want the outside to look a little prettier. I want to clean up some areas of my life, and once I get a hold on that, in other words, I want the outside to look pretty. You know, I want it to look like I have it together. I, I don't want it to look like, you know, I don't have it together. So let me work on that. Listen, you can't make that look anything like that. You just can't do it. It's an impossibility. We don't really understand even how this happens, right? We don't, we don't know how the Spirit of God regenerates our heart. It's what the theological word that we use. He regenerates us. He makes us alive. He quickens our spirit and makes us come alive spiritually from deadness to now we're alive. We don't know how he does that. The Bible talks about it in John chapter 3, this, this, this new birth. And he explains it like this. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sounds, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I don't know where, you know, it's windy outside. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. It's the same thing with, with this new birth. The Spirit of God comes, boom, saves you. You don't know how. You don't understand how that all works, but you're made completely new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that the, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. So many people struggle with salvation because they keep thinking it's something that they do. I got to do. I got to earn I got to work on this. No, this is done by the Spirit of God. He makes you new. He makes you a brand new person. It happens instantly. 
It doesn't happen over a progression of years where God is saving you a little bit at a time. You are dead, and in a moment, you're alive. And it doesn't happen more than once. In other words, God doesn't save you, and then you die again, and then you need to experience a new birth again. No. That would probably be a representation of somebody who never got it in the first place. And so when we understand it in this light, it helps us to dive in deeper to our worship because we're understanding that, okay, this happens instantly. It happens only once. And as I'm experiencing this, I realize, okay, the question then becomes, has this happened to you? Has this moment of understanding that you are spiritually dead and by faith receiving Christ into your life and then experiencing a new birth, has that happened for you? At what point in your life has that happened? I grew up in a Christian home and if you were raised in a Christian home, you maybe were like me where you understood the gospel a little bit at a time. You raise your kids and I learned it a little bit at a time, and it progressively my knowledge kind of grew about the gospel. And at an early age, I kind of, you know, I kind of responded. Looking back, my best friend re- responded, and he got all kinds of attention. And then I was like, "Bro, you're not going to outdo me on this one." And so I kind of, kind of was motivated by that. Then later, as a teenager, experienced this. I came to that point of of, of realizing and recognizing that my life. The path that I was on was evidence that this was my spirit, not that. And so that's when God saved me. Some of you grew, growing up in, in, in church, maybe you kind of progressively kind of learned and there wasn't this huge behavior you know, change in your life when, when this happened. And so it wasn't like you were a five-year-old crack addict turned six-year-old saint and just didn't happen that way, you know? And so maybe it's a little foggy for you or maybe you're not, you know, tracking, but but I, 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 maybe you're an adult, and looking back, it was as a teenager or it was as an adult that you gave your life to Christ and God saved you, and that was a clear time where you were spiritually dead and separated from God, and, and faith in Christ made you a brand new person. Immediately after that happens, there's a difference in your life. Worship will be a delight. Reading the Word of God will be a delight. You're going to want to engage in church. You're going to want to obey God's word, but it's like the wind. We hear it sound, we see the results, but we can't actually see the wind blowing itself. I can tell when somebody has been changed from death to life by looking at their life. I know that God has changed me by examining my life. But the question that you've got to wrestle with is have is has God changed your life? Have you made a commitment? Have, have you experienced this transformation, a, a rebirth, a renewal, a brand new person? There's so many people who bank on a prayer that they prayed at some point in their life, but moving forward, their life still looked like this. No, you're not gonna be perfect but there is going to be a transformation in your life. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to experience that transformation today, but I want to clarify a couple of things here. Like when we are experiencing salvation, this is God saving you and then you responding. 
Too many Christians, I think, wrongly believe that they accepted Jesus first and then God saved them. By your faith, it doesn't happen unless God first and foremost makes your heart come alive and prepares your heart to actually receive it. And so what this passage is telling us is that God makes us alive and then he enables us to repent and believe. In other words, God saved you and then you experience the prayer of commitment. And some of you are like, aren't you kind of splitting hairs? Is that really a big deal, Trent? And uh, does it really matter? And I would say it does matter because if I prayed and I made a commitment and I did whatever, then that means that I can take a little bit of credit for my salvation. But that's not what's happening. Based on Ephesians 1 and 2, what we're seeing here is that God is showing those who are children of wrath, dead in their sin. He is showing us his mercy. I was dead, and it was God who was rich. I wasn't willing. God was willing. God was merciful. I was dead. I was miserable. I was lonely. I wasn't looking for him, but he was drawing me to him, and then he saved me, and he gave me a new spirit, and then I said, yes, and he changed my life. And I just wonder if you have ever done that. I think one reality by understanding salvation in this way is that it can deepen our heart for worship. It's like when we're singing, God, you are worthy. You are worthy of all our praise because I didn't do anything This is your will and your purpose and your power and you drawing me and you saving me and giving me a new birth. Oh yeah, you're worthy. You are rich in mercy. I do not deserve it. I never will deserve it, but I praise God that he blessed me with it and now my life is to honor him and my life is to share the truth with those who have not experienced it. When I ask people to respond to the gospel, and I'm going to do it here in a little bit for those of you that are wrestling with this and want to make this, this commitment verbally. Um, essentially, what we've got to realize is that that prayer is, is not a magical prayer. In fact, it's not even a, a biblical command. It is helpful in the sense that we are able to verbally put our faith in Jesus. It's, it's like a, a verbal statement where we are actually committing our life to Jesus and, and, and we're verbally repenting of sin and believing in him. And so I think there is value to that. But the ability to even pray that prayer authentically is that God has saving you in that moment. It's like seconds, God's saving you and giving you the new birth and you're responding with a prayer of commitment. So why does this happen? How does this happen? Look at verse five again, circle it in your Bible. By his grace, his grace. Why is this happening in verse seven? The riches of his grace. Why is this happening? Verse eight, for it's by grace. Nothing that I do, if there was anything that I did, then I could boast about it, I could brag about it. But I can't, I did nothing. He did it all. He paid it all, he did it all. It is by his grace Grace is the unmerited favor of God. And listen to me, God doesn't owe you grace. He doesn't owe you grace. That's why the whole fair argument doesn't hold any weight. 
Because fair for you and me is that we spend an eternity in hell separated from God. As a child of wrath, that's what we deserve. That's what's fair. But his grace comes to us. It is unearned, unmerited. His love is given to us. I can never deserve it. I could never offer God any beauty. I could never offer God any, anything remotely like this that he would look at and say, oh, looks good, smells good. No, nothing about us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. I can't save myself on my own. I can't set myself free from my own sin. This is God's work in Christ. And then finally, we see God's work in us, in you. Look at verse 10 again. He says that you and I, by faith, when we are transformed into the new life, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, beforehand, echoing chapter one, before the foundations of the world, he prepared this beforehand, that we should walk in them. So God is giving you a brand new life, a brand new birth that you didn't earn through the mercy that is so rich and the grace that is so rich so that you and I would be a demonstration to the world with our words and with our actions just how beautiful the grace of the gospel really is. The bottom line today is that you and I are not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. We're saved for good works. You are the workmanship of God. You are a masterpiece. He created you specifically with the talents that he has given to you. He created you and, and, and allowed you to be born wherever you were born and live wherever you live. He orchestrated that whole deal. The things that get you excited, the things that you're passionate about, he set that passion within your heart. He wanted you to be passionate about that so that when he saved you and created you, you would take that passion and you would marry the truth of the gospel with that. And as the truth of the gospel saturated your new life, you would do the things that you're excited about and you would do it in the name of Jesus. So if you're a teacher, you're not just teaching kids. You're the beautiful workmanship of a God that created you and loved you and has a plan for you and has a purpose for you. And you're gonna teach arithmetic, but you're also gonna live out the truth of the gospel in your life that influences kids and parents and teenagers and whoever else comes before you. Whatever it is you do, God is gonna use that for his kingdom. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose for you. Some of you are here today and you're like, man, I've been running from God. I've been fighting this whole spiritual God thing for whatever reasons. The ultimate reason is because you're spiritually dead. Some of you are thinking, man, I knew I should not have come here. I did not want to hear this. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why. I never wanted to hear this kind of thing. But then there's another side of you inside very, the very depths of your soul that's thinking, I've been dying to hear this message. I've been dying to hear this truth because God is right now in the process of bringing you from death to life. This God is not through with you. 
he's not done with you. You say, you don't know how bad it is. You don't know what sin is here. Listen, I'm telling you, it's dead. It's all I need to know. It's dead. And it's not going to turn any better for you until you turn your life over to Jesus. Until you come to him by faith. Until you realize that whatever you've been banking on as a kid or whatever you know, formula someone gave you to get saved and then your life still looked like this, like that, like that was not what we're talking about today. Until you can, can honestly look at your own spiritual life and recognize that this transformation hasn't happened, then you'll continue to walk that path. I think today the truth of the gospel and the truth of what God wants to do in your life is that you, in fact, need to make this commitment today. So I want to invite you to actually do that. I want to ask everyone just to bow their heads and please no one leave or get up or distract because I know that there are many people in the room that are dealing with this idea of being born again and struggling with this concept. Maybe today you're realizing that all the problems and the emptiness and the confusion are stemming from the fact that you've never experienced new life. You've never moved from being dead in your sins and been made alive in Christ. And today, I believe God is calling someone in here to do just that. And if that is you, you just simply say this to God as your commitment to him. Just say, dear God, I confess that I am a sinner. I am in need of forgiveness. And I believe that you made a way. And that way is Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the grave. And because of that, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and save me right now. God, from this point forward, my life is yours. I surrender it all. In the quietness of this room, how many in this room with no one else looking around would just say, Trent, I just experienced that new birth. Just by a show of hands, would you throw your hand up and say, I just prayed that prayer, Trent. I see you, young lady. I see you, man, in the back. Anyone else, just slip your hand up, put it back down. I'm looking to my left. You're right. Anybody else over here that I missed? How about in the center? Anybody here in the center, all the way back to the top? I see you, my man. Praise God. Anybody over here to my right, your left? I see you, ma'am. I see that. Anyone else? I don't know. I saw probably five, six hands potentially. I believe that in the presence of the Holy Spirit, he has blown into this place and he has moved. I don't know where he came from. I don't know where it's going, but six people just gave their lives to Jesus, folks. And we need to praise God for that. Can we thank him for that? Here's what I want to encourage you to do. If that was your decision today, I want to encourage you to, to let somebody know. And you can let someone know here at FC by indicating on your card that you prayed to receive Christ. 
You can indicate that uh, by grabbing one of our, our section leaders who they're wearing a name badge and they're wearing light blue shirts. You got some folks over here. Every section has a leader. Just go to them and tell them what you did. Ultimately, I'd love for you to go to our care and prayer room. It's in the atrium. As soon as you walk out into the, to the large atrium out there, you, you'll see the big words over the doors, care and prayer. Go in there and say, I just, I just prayed to receive Christ today. And they're going to high five you and encourage you. And uh, we're going to celebrate new life in you. And uh, that's so, so amazing. And I'm so excited about what God has done and is doing. And so we're going to close today uh, by singing about how we were dead. And when Jesus called us out, we ran into new life. You guys want to sing about that? You want to sing? Let's all stand. Let's praise God today and let's worship him as we celebrate what God is doing in our life. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.